A devastating residential fire over the weekend in New York City claimed 19 lives, including nine children. Coming on the heels of a similar deadly blaze in Philadelphia public housing that killed four adults and eight children, this tragedy highlights the complete inability of the capitalist system to provide safe, dignified housing for workers. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, and a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolff's book, Understanding Marxism, has been released, which features a new lengthy introduction strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. Well, Professor Wolf, you're in New York City. The whole country is shocked at this deadly blaze in the Bronx, claiming 19 lives. Nine children died in this horrible tragedy. But this is really a crime of the capitalist system, isn't it? Yeah, it has to do with something as fundamental to human experience as housing. You know, we we say in the economics profession that I'm part of, that the basics of human existence are food, clothing, and shelter. At the very least, if you're talking about the material side of life, we do really need to have food, clothing, and shelter before we talk much about anything else, since without those, our survival physically and mentally are at stake. So it has always been, and rightly so, a measure of how successful a society and its economic system are to take a look at the quality and quantity of food, clothing, and shelter that the system provides to the people that live in it. And by that standard, looking just for a moment at the housing, American capitalism for sure falls short. I mean, we have an enormous population of homeless people, We have an enormous population of people who are crowded into housing that is, to use the language of the government, substandard, and I'll come back to that. And then we have millions of people who are in one of two conditions that we know are unsafe, 
either there are too many people crowded into too little square footage of space, and we don't keep track of that, but that's an enormous number, or another enormous number, people who are spending a larger proportion of their income on housing than it is safe to do. The usual cutoff point is somewhere between 20 and 30% of your income is as much as your housing should cost, because if it costs more than 20 to 30%, it's going to be housing at the expense of food and clothing and medical care and transportation, and those maybe not at the same level as housing, but nearly as important to a decent life. So if you put all those together, yeah, I think this conclusion is inescapable that the capitalist system, the way it works, is not adequate, is not acceptable, is not able as a system to guarantee the shelter part of food, clothing, and shelter. And I'll leave aside how good it is at the other two either. And if I might, let me explain the basic logic here, because this is not rocket science. Let's take a look at how capitalism works from the perspective of the capitalist. That is the person who has enough money to buy things, inputs, hire workers, set the inputs up so that the workers can transform them from inputs into outputs, which the capitalist then sells. In doing all of that, the goal of the capitalists, as they will say themselves quite openly, is to profit, to have more money coming in when they sell their output than the money they had to put out for their inputs and their labor. So they are constantly engaged in two things to keep your eye on. Number one, to pay the lowest wages they can get away with and still have the worker come and do the work because the less they pay that worker, other things equal, the more profitable their business will be. And the same logic applies to pricing the output. The higher the price they can set for whatever it is they sell, other things equal, the more profitable they'll be. In short, the logic of capitalism is to minimize what you pay out in wages and to maximize what you get as revenue for selling the output that your business generates. Here's the sad result. Workers in our capitalist system don't have enough money because the system is pressing down their wages all the time, so they don't have enough money to do what? Well, to keep up with the prices of things that they buy, which, if you remember, capitalists have every interest in raising as much as they can. In other words, the way the system is set up, it has incentive to lower your wages and at the same time an incentive to raise the prices you pay. And that's our housing crisis. People don't have enough money to pay the rent or to buy the home that they need to live in a decent way, both for themselves and their families. You have every incentive for the landlord, the capitalist who buys and owns a building, or more than one, 
that capitalist will do everything to lower the wages and therefore compromise the quality of the work that's done to make the building safe, to heat the building, to keep the building clean, all of the rest of it, meanwhile charging as high a rent as he thinks he can get away with. And that leaves millions and millions of people caught in that dilemma, caught in that contradiction, if you allow me, between what the system enables people to afford and what the same system incentivizes the landlords to charge. So they end up spending too much of their income and hurting the rest of their lives, being unable to have any housing at all, or being forced to live in and accept substandard, inadequately safe buildings. And the Bronx fire that you opened the program with, there's the debate in the press here in New York City, is whether it was an illegal or in any case unsafe space heater that set the fire off. And of course, the only reason people have room space heaters in apartment buildings in New York City is if the apartment building isn't warm enough in terms of its regular heating mechanisms. And then the debate is, was it that or was it certain doorways in these apartments that weren't movable and you couldn't open and close them the way you're legally supposed to make sure they are. And why is that? Well, it's because the building doesn't pay someone to make sure those doorways are always kept open. Or the city is not paying enough people to be inspectors and it doesn't have a system to monitor that that's adequate. But however you cut the details, the bottom line is this is a system so structured that the housing crisis is continual. That's why you can point to a fire in Philadelphia a few days before the one in the Bronx here in New York. And there are many, many, many more all the time. They don't get the big publicity because they don't kill quite so many people. They don't hurt quite so many, or it isn't in a major city that has a news apparatus that will at least find something exciting by showing photos of the fire trucks pouring water in to contain the fire. It's a very sad commentary, but the important point is it's a systemic problem. It's not a problem about space heaters or this or that particular building. Yeah, absolutely. And overcrowding is a crucial issue here, too, as well. In Philadelphia, I mean, certainly there was over 25 people who are living in a single row home that caught on fire. And that row home was public housing. There's an unbelievable shortage of public housing units in Philly and so many other cities across the country could easily be on the waiting list for a decade or more. And so even though you know the overcrowding itself, while a fire hazard might not have been the direct immediate cause of the fire, it certainly makes it so much more devastating. I mean, every every factor here just shows the total inhumanity, I think, of the capitalist system. And this drive to constantly cut costs inadequately maintained buildings. I mean, as you said, there's still, you know, this debate, investigation going on as to what exactly went down and in what sequence, but certainly all of these factors are present 
and capitalism's profit maximizing instincts are at the the very core of all of it. I just want to ask you a little bit more about housing more generally, in addition to safety, just the ability of working class people to find adequate, dignified housing, which is related to safety, of course, from the perspective of crowding and so forth. That's become much, much more difficult in recent years. I mean, working class people, of course, have always had to contend with high rents, exploitative landlords. But there is something unique about this latest stage of highly financialized capitalism that makes housing especially important, isn't there? Yes, because basically, if you have an industry that we call housing, if it were run by Mr. or Ms. Jones, who have a building or have a house and rent out parts of it as apartments, there's still something left, if you like, of a human relationship. People who live in the same building get to know each other. Even if you're the landlord of several buildings, chances are, if you're a small fry, you know the people, you interviewed them when they decided to take the apartment, you met their children, you see them occasionally when you're there to make a repair. There's some human relationship And that affects at least the decent among the landlords, that they don't want to throw people into the street. They understand that if they eject or evict the parents, the children who are totally innocent suffer all of the trauma of moving and losing their homes, etc., etc. But when you have what we call financialization, when more and more of real estate, housing in particular, is owned by huge corporate entities. Then you have people far away who are simply looking at numbers. How much did we spend to buy these apartments? How much rent is coming in? How much money are we spending to maintain these buildings? And if that doesn't work out to be profitable, something's got to give. Maybe you'll sell the apartment to some other capitalist who won't keep it up the way you did. And then we see the results. Or maybe you'll jack up the rents to get a better result. But you don't know these people. You're sitting thousands of miles away in some skyscraper in New York or L.A. or Chicago. And so the financialization of everything makes what little humanity there was once makes it all uh, disappear. And you are you are literally left to a calculation you don't understand from which you are excluded, but which can be so powerful that it deprives you of a home. And let me drive home. This is a problem of making housing something that is driven by private profitability. There's nothing written in any religious book that I'm aware of, not the Bible, not the Quran, anything else, that requires housing to be handled as a profit-generating business. We don't ask universities to generate profits. At least we're not supposed to. They're there to educate people. And whether that costs a little more or a little less is considered way secondary to the question of giving our people a proper education to live the kind of life here in the 21st century that we think is appropriate. 
Well, then why do we think something as important as housing? And by the way, I could say the same thing for food and clothing. But for housing, for sure, why do we do that? And let me give you an example of what has happened when people have been daring enough to ask this question. About a century or so ago, there was a housing crisis in the capitalist center of Austria, the city of Vienna. Just like today, capitalists were squeezing immigrants and others too many into a room. Buildings were not maintained properly. There wasn't enough housing being built to accommodate people in a decent way. Literally everything we could talk about today existed over 100 years ago in Vienna. But then something interesting happened. Socialists, the Socialist Party of Vienna, became strong enough to win the elections and take over the government of the city of Vienna, a major European capital, the capital of Austria at the time, etc. And here's what the socialists said. It is inappropriate for housing to be left to private capitalism. It's inappropriate, not just because we as socialists don't like capitalism. It's a much stronger argument. Capitalism has failed. It's been in existence here in Austria for a good century now, particularly in the capital of Vienna. We've had private enterprise housing for a long time, and it doesn't do an adequate job. So here's what we're going to do. And I'm not advocating this. I'm just explaining where the logic goes. We are going to build public housing here in Austria, in Vienna. It's going to be owned and operated by the city as a public utility. Just like we operate the water system, just like we operate the public parks in our community, we are going to operate housing. And roughly half of the housing in Vienna is public, something Americans can't even imagine. And it's been that way for over a century. If you go to Vienna, which I have done repeatedly, and you take a look at the public housing, you as an American probably wouldn't recognize it. The housing is beautiful. The gardens around which these apartment buildings are built are beautifully maintained, full of flowers and playgrounds for children and places for adults to get together. It's remarkable. And it's been that way from the beginning. The funds are made available by the city to take care of these buildings. And where does the money come from? Well, the people who run the public housing will tell you with pride. We don't have to make a profit. We don't have to generate the kind of income from these apartments that will make an investor rich so that he provides the money for these buildings. No, no, no. We're taking these buildings over from the private enterprises. We're buying them out. We're going to run them for no profit because here comes the kicker. The money that used to go to the rich who invested in property is now going to be used to make sure that the public housing of this city of Vienna 
is as attractive, is as safe, is as clean, and is as wonderful as the private housing ever was. And they've done that. They've kept that promise for over a century, which is why even when in Vienna, right-wing political forces took over, and let's remember, Vienna was also part of the Nazi system when the Germans took over Austria back in 1934 for a while. Even then, no politician dared undo the public housing because half of Vienna would have voted against you the next morning if you dared do that. So their public housing solved the problem, but I want to stress why. Because they withdrew from profit-driven capitalism to make the provision of housing a little bit like the provision of public parks, or the provision of public schools, or the provision of other important things that we do not leave to private capitalism because of its incentives to improve profit at the expense of the quality and the decency of a basic component to a decent life. Yeah, thank you, Professor Wolf. Such important points. Yeah, I mean, these are the the fundamental questions that are so threatening to the capitalist system. I mean, why do things that are absolutely fundamental to human existence, why are those in the realm of commodities? Can't those become non-commodities? Can't those become rights, socially recognized rights that are won in struggle and protected by the organized power of working people who need all of those things and who are routinely denied it under this existing system? Housing absolutely at the top of that list as these deadly fires have shown something that capitalism has proven itself to be completely incapable of providing in the realm of commodity production, in the realm of a profit-making commodity to be bought and sold. So there is, you know, you, you laid out that history in Austria, which I think is a really important example. And it shows why having a strong socialist movement is something that changes the balance of power, the balance of forces in many different areas in society on many different issues. The whole balance of power between bosses and workers changes once there's an organized workers movement advocating for a society run by workers, also known as socialism. There are a lot of people, and and I frequently get asked questions by activists in different parts of the country about what can we do And especially they're interested in tenant organizing, in tenants unions and other forms of organization for working class people who rent their homes and want to either be able to remain in their homes because of gentrification and rising rents or want to live in dignity in their homes and need, you know, basic fundamental repairs made to the housing that they live in. Talk a little bit, if you would, about tenant organizing, tenants unions in the United States. I mean, what can people do to fight back and begin to tip the scales on this, you know, crucial, crucial issue? Well, you know, the working class has been fighting about housing literally as old as as long as capitalism has been around and making these basic arguments and having these struggles. So the way to answer your question is to simply go through briefly a list of what people have in fact done over the years 
because I don't think we need to worry about inventing new mechanisms. If we can just organize people, then there's a whole repertoire, a whole a list of things we can and should do. And the best answer is do them all. That's the best chance that one or more of them will work. So here we go. Number one, get the people together in a building to conduct what is called a rent strike. You simply will not leave your apartment. You will not pay your rent until the landlord deals with the issues that put you in this position in the first place. And you then appeal to public opinion. You appeal to other people in the community to follow suit. And believe you, nothing will get your landlord to move quicker than getting nasty phone calls from other landlords worried that if you don't meet these workers' needs, that strike wave that started in your building will go on and connect over to their building, and they don't want to do that. They want you to take the steps to stop this from spreading. So that's one. Number two, put a demand through demonstrations and marches on your local politicians. Let them understand that if they don't take up the effort that you will mobilize people to vote them out of office and to vote in people who are sensitive to Number three, follow the lead that you could see in Berlin. Over the last two years, socialists, and by the way, the socialists are the government in the city of Berlin, as they were a century ago in, in Austria, and they followed suit. They learned, and here's what they did. They said, we're not interested in the landlord who has one or two or three apartments for rent in his or her house. But we are interested in the huge financialized mega landlords, those who own thousands and thousands of apartments here in the city of Berlin, the capital. Wow. And so they put on the ballot a provision that the city of Berlin will buy the big landlords out. They won't have a choice. They'll have to sell. They'll get an appraisal of what a reasonable market price is, and the city of Berlin will buy out the two large landlords, convert tens of thousands of apartments into public housing that will be maintained, clean, safe, etc., on the model of Vienna. And they put that to the voters. This was the vote, I believe, either late November or early December of last year, so very recent. And the, a solid majority of the voters in Berlin voted in favor of doing this. So it's a majority-supported initiative. Now, they're getting cold feet. The landlords are big corporations, so they're pulling out the stops, filling the media with horror stories of what's going to happen. Yeah, all of that's predictable. And so it's not yet clear whether they will do what the majority of voters indicated they want the leaders to do. But the whole conversation in Germany and Berlin is literally years ahead of what we have here in the United States because activists have been busy around the housing question at all levels. Rent strikes, rent strikes expanding across areas, pressure on politicians voting up or down on whether or not they're going to support 
public housing, culminating in what I just described in Berlin, the insistence that public housing be created, that private housing has to compete with a quality and price of public housing that otherwise they would ignore, but now they're going to have real competition, so they better not dare to raise the rents crazily in private housing because public housing is a real competitive option for people. Put all those ingredients together and the creative imagination of workers fighting over this question of housing can be and should be mobilized to solve the problem. We're going to have to leave it right there. We've been joined by Richard Wolf. Professor Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.